Welcome back to the Genesis of Conception. I am your hostess, Bex David, and this is the space between the picket lines. This is a place where we talk about all things pro-life, but we come at it from the basis of real science and provable data. Now, in our last episode, we discussed being born alive and left to die paired with maternal mortality rates as they apply to those who choose the route of abortion. Now, not going to lie, I had a completely different episode planned for this week, and then the Supreme Court went and they overturned Roe v. Wade earlier than expected. So, here we go. Now, of course, the entire internet lost its collective mind, both on the side of those in favor of the overturning and those who were against it. Everyone's got very strong opinions no matter where they stand on the matter. So what I did was I spent the last week getting as much feedback from all sides as I possibly could, including the nightmare fest of investigating pro-choice social media. I have also intentionally gone and spoken at a very high emotion rally to people from Antifa and the Church of Satan and random others who were very unhappy to have pro-life people in their midst. Now, tensions and emotions regarding the topic are higher than I have ever ever seen them before, and I've been doing this for about two and a half years now. Additionally, one weird thing I discovered was that many women I know, from not just the pro-choice side of the equation, but also those who would consider themselves almost completely, if not completely pro-life, are terrified of what this means for their futures. Now, as a woman, and as someone with deep compassion for those experiencing crises, this breaks my heart. But on this show, it is my mission to ensure that I do not allow compassion to eclipse either facts or truth. So as we do on this show, I'm going to cut through all the noise and I'm simply going to give you the facts as they stand. So today, we're going to look at what the decision actually means for the country as a whole and the states individually. There are quite a few myths and exaggerations to be debunked and a few, I'll call them heads ups, to be given. We'll also examine the church's response, the secular response, and why they matter to one another. And finally, I want to talk about what I'm going to dub abortion tourism and the inherent dangers therein. Now, prequel before launch. For those of you who are experiencing a very negative, visceral response right now, I'm going to humbly ask that you put that aside and simply listen to the facts. I am not your enemy here. In fact, I care so much about those who disagree with me on this that I faced down a mob that was surrounding me and my fellow pro-life humans on all sides a couple of days ago, and as they spoke threats and intimidation and scare tactics at me, I spoke love and truth to them. So hear me when I say that I care about you and treasure you far more than you know, and I want to give you the truth, even if you call me horrible names and wish terrible things on me in the process, because you cannot out-hate my love for you because it comes from my Savior's love for you. So let's get down to it. First and foremost, the big question of the day, what does the overturning mean and what does it not mean? Now, literally all that it means is that rather than there being a federal law protecting abortion across the entire nation, all decisions about abortion go back to the states individually. Therefore, if the people of a particular state want abortion access, they can vote it in. And if they don't, they can vote it out. 
Now, this overruling does not, does not touch gay rights or contraception or miscarriage or in in vitro fertilization or whatever else you may have heard. Those are all separate matters for separate days. Now, for for verification on all of that, you can actually check out basically any commentators from the Daily Wire. They are all very much the type to give strictly the data, and they always cite the documents they use to prove their points. Now, for the nitty-gritty of what each state currently has on the books or is fighting to put on the books, or conversely, fighting to remove from the books, compliments of The Morning Wire. And in case you don't know, The Morning Wire is a show whose whole business is cutting through the noise and the emotions and the hysteria for the sake of the real truth. So compliments of them. I'm going to tell you what the state-to-state ramifications are and what they are not. Now, many states have something called trigger laws on the books. The basic concept of a trigger law is as follows. Say that there's a state law on the books for that state, and then there's a federal law that disagrees with the state law. In that scenario, the federal law overrides the state law. But if the federal law falls or is overturned, then the states individually have something akin to backup laws in place that go into effect. So, in the case of abortion, this means that when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, that the states which have trigger laws about abortion now get to implement them, regardless of whether or not those laws would have previously been overridden by federal law. So, some some states currently have laws on the books, and some states are gearing up to either enforce or replace those laws, depending on the overall wishes of the citizens of that state. Now, there are a few blanket rules all the way around. First, in all 50 states, a pregnancy can be ended to protect the physical health of the mother. And let me be clear here. When I say physical health of the mother, I'm talking real actual medically provable risk. So for example, if a mom is facing an ectopic pregnancy, which is what it, which is what happens when a fertilized egg attaches outside of the uterus, if she's facing that, All 50 states are fine with her choosing to care for her health over the child's. Additionally, there are no states which will penalize a miscarriage. I've actually heard this more times than I can count in the past week, that that people will be jailed for miscarrying. It's been all over social media, especially pro-choice social media, and it is not true. There are zero, I repeat, zero states where the mother would be jailed for miscarrying her child. And I'm speaking as someone with a sibling who just lost a child to miscarriage a little while back. And it was in Texas, which has some of the most stringent uh, pro-life laws on the books. Being jailed for miscarrying a child is not a thing. It's just not. And by the way, the same is true even when the miscarriage is the direct result of some version of an induced abortion. Now, an induced abortion is what happens when a woman intentionally and specifically partakes in unhealthy behaviors during pregnancy that are widely known to be causes of miscarriage. So even in cases of an induced abortion, the woman will still not go to jail if she ends up with a miscarriage. That is happening in all 50 states, that the mother's life being on the line is an acceptable reason to end a pregnancy, and none of the states will jail a mom for miscarrying her child. Now, I know I sound like a broken record and I'm repeating myself, but I really want y'all to understand the truth on this. 
Another very important aspect here is that all legal repercussions, including the ones in states such as Texas, are directed at the institutions which provide the abortions, not the woman seeking the abortions. So for all laws that would be on the books and that are on the books and that are be and that are being talked about even in um, sanctuary states for the preborn, the the penalization and the legal repercussions would fall on the clinics and on the actual abortionists, never on the woman seeking the abortion. That's very important to understand. Now, with those stipulations outlined, everything else, I'm not going to lie, it gets a bit more muddled. There are some states which are looking to heavily restrict elective abortions, and, and that, by the way, is where a pregnant woman goes in for a reason other than an actual legitimate medical necessity. And by the way, on this front, things like I don't feel ready for a child and a child will mess up my current plans, those do not count as medical necessity, even if they do feel very real and very pressing. Now, there are currently 10 states which are preparing to initiate total bans of everything that was not already outlined in the previous stipulations. So, in every other circumstance, except for physical health of the mother and a miscarriage, which are and will continue to be legally acceptable reasons to end a pregnancy in any state, the following 10 states will protect the preborn from slaughter in the womb. They are as follows. Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, South Dakota, Wisconsin, West Virginia, and Texas. Those states will effectively become havens for life, and I, as both a lifelong Texan and a pro-life woman, am very, very proud of that. Now, in some states, uh, some of those states, stipulations are being considered to account for if the child appears to have some sort of either detrimental illness or malfunction. Now, that means that if the parents are given medical proof that their child will be what is called incompatible with life outside the womb, they can choose abortion. Now, a very important distinction here, because I hear this argument frequently. There is a difference between medical proof that the child is going to have something like autism or being born without a fully formed limb or something of that variety. There is a stark difference between those struggles, which are difficult, but by no means incompatible with life outside the womb, versus something like a child who's developing without a beating heart or a working liver or some other vital organ is missing. If you choose to abort your child because they're going to have autism or have a missing limb or something like that, I would argue that your heart is not in the right place. You are coming from a selfish place. And I would encourage you to reevaluate your priorities. Because if your thought process is, oh, my child's not going to come out perfect, and therefore I just want to off this child, kill this child, and try again and have a better child, I would argue that you really need to evaluate why, you're, you, why your mind and why your heart go there. If, on the other hand, your child is developing without a vital organ, it's a different story. And I wish you Godspeed in figuring it out. But looping back to the original point on this, for Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, South Dakota, Wisconsin, West Virginia, and Texas, as things stand currently, the trigger laws on the books in those 10 states will make them havens for life in every case except actual medical necessity, miscarriage, and possibly the child being incompatible with life outside of the womb. Now, another seven states are looking at something akin to a near-total abortion ban, but the difference is that these seven states will add exceptions for rape and incest. The states are as follows. Mississippi, Oklahoma, 
Idaho, Utah, Tennessee, Wyoming, and North Dakota. Now, on a total side note here, but I think it's kind of funny that North Dakota and South Dakota aren't actually on exactly the same page regarding this issue. To me, that's kind of funny. Now, again, in those states that I just mentioned, there will be exceptions made for the mother to choose abortion in cases of rape and incest, as well as miscarriage and medical necessity. Then we get to the next nine states, and they're probably going to impose what they call pre-viability restrictions. Now, these restrictions are going to include things like the protection of preborn children with a detectable independent heartbeat. And by the way, if you don't know, that happens as early as the six-week mark. Now, this matters because viability is the time tag at which an infant who is born prematurely can survive outside the womb, and it is typically marked at somewhere between 22 and 24 weeks of gestation. Now, there, that means with these laws in these states, there's a period of multiple months between when a heartbeat can be detected and when even the tiniest preemies have been recorded to survive with medical care outside of the womb. Now, I believe that the earliest was 21 weeks, and I did an episode telling that story. I encourage you to go listen to it after this. So, these pre-viability restrictions would protect a preborn child in that interim. And states which are probably going to enact those restrictions are as follows. Ohio, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Indiana, Nebraska, and Iowa. Now, for reference here, these restrictions that I'm talking about right now are already standard practiced in most of the developed world. So we are not talking about some absurd, unheard of elsewhere set of rules. We're talking about matching the protections which most of the developed world already gives to preborn children because they have this wild notion that butchering children in the womb is barbaric. Then, going in the opposite direction, there are several states which are looking to either expand or maintain current abortion access. The categories break down as follows. There are five states which allow abortion up to the point of viability, which is when a child can survive outside of the womb with medical care. Those states are Montana, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Kansas, and Virginia. There are also 13 states with virtually no restrictions up to and even after the point of viability. Now, this group is distinct from the next group because in the next group, it's going to be the people who or the states who say, you know, abortion on demand up until the moment of birth. No issues. We're cool with that. The 13 states I'm currently talking about, they're distinct because they have not quite gotten to the point of saying that, but they also will not protect a preemie who is struggling to live after being born earlier than expected. So those states are Maryland, California, Hawaii, Delaware, Connecticut, Illinois, Maine, Massachusetts, New York, Rhode Island, Washington, Michigan, and Nevada. Now that means that in those states, it does not matter whether the child is grown enough to survive outside of the womb with help. Now for perspective on this, because I really want you to understand what that means. Hospitals where women go to have their children have something called a neonatal care ward. That entire ward is designed for preemies who are wanted by their parents. And so after the, after the child is born early, they go to the, neo, the neonatal ward and they are cared for there and nurtured until they can survive without machine help. 
That is the entire point of the neonatal ward in these states. The only difference between the children who are wanted and get to go to the neonatal ward and the ones who are not and are born alive and left to die is whether or not the parents decide, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and save this child. So that's why that matters. And if you don't believe me and you're like, oh, that doesn't happen, I would highly recommend you check out my born alive and left to die episode. But again, for Maryland, California, Hawaii, Delaware, Connecticut, Illinois, Maine, Massachusetts, New York, Rhode Island, Washington, Michigan, and Nevada, if the mom decides not to choose life for her preemie, that is A-OK by their laws. And instead of that preemie going to the neonatal world and being neat neonatal ward and being cared for, they're just left to die. Now, finally, there are seven states which have basically zero qualms about abortion at any point whatsoever, for any reason whatsoever, up until the point of birth. Those states are as follows. New Jersey, Oregon, Alaska, Colorado, Minnesota, New Mexico, and Vermont. In those states, the mom can choose to butcher her child for any reason at any point until birth or to go have her child butchered by an abortionist, I should say. And it is counted as a win, quote unquote, for women's rights, which objectively is insane. Now, of course, where there are rules, there are addendums. So here are those. There are states who will likely take another look at their laws and give an updated copy. By way of example, Wisconsin has had their current laws on abortion since about 1840, so they might update things to make sure that they reflect what their residents most desire in the present day. Also, states like New Mexico have a constitution which doesn't really address abortion as a topic necessarily, so the legislator has got to decide whether or not to add anything. Then there are states which are actively moving to enshrine abortion into their particular constitution. So think like a smaller scale Roe versus Wade that would apply only to the specific state in question. Now, the states that are looking at doing that include California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, Rhode Island, Vermont, Nevada, and Washington. Additionally, New Jersey, Montana, and Oregon already protect abortion in their state constitutions, and California, of course, is pushing to make the same thing happen this fall. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, Kansas voters are taking the approach of voting this summer to outlaw abortion outright so that they would join states like my own, aka Texas, as sanctuaries for the preborn. So, as you can tell, there are states who are actively trying to do everything possible to protect innocent preborn life now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. And then there are states who are taking the opposite approach and they're actively trying to become abortion sanctuaries. I personally think it's going to be interesting to see where all the dice fall on the topic. Now on to the next part of the equation, the secular reaction versus the Christian reaction. Now, I'm not going to lie. I had fully expected that the secular reaction would be panic on a large enough scale to border on paranoia and mania, and I was almost completely correct on that. What I did not expect was so many people who ascribed the title of Christianity being against the downfall of Roe. That one shocked me. It took me a minute to wrap my brain around that. Now, it shocked me because you cannot be a true believer in Christ and also think that there is 
any acceptable reason to intentionally end the life of an innocent human, preborn or otherwise. That's why one of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not murder. I actually did an entire episode explaining why, which I encourage you to go check out after this. Now, when I first heard that there were pastors from all across the Christian world hating on the downfall of Roe and actually preaching sermons about why it was a bad thing, I knew that I had to investigate. Enter Baptist News Global, which matters to me as a lifelong Baptist. Now, I'm going to elaborate that while it comes from a Baptist source, it touches on basically every major denomination. So bear with me. Now, I don't have time to quote them all because while I was going through and doing research, there was a lot of pastors and a lot of things being said. So I just chose three pastors from three three different denominations who sort of encompassed most of the main arguments that were being said in churches against the downfall of Roe. So I'm going to give you highlights and I'm going to explain why I think they are wrong. First, out of the First Baptist Church of Madison, Wisconsin, we've got Pastor Tim Schaefer, who said, quote, Our Baptist faith is rooted very deeply in a couple of traditions, the first being the separation of church and state. We believe no single religious belief or interpretation of scripture should be used by the government to dictate practices on everybody else. I think this ruling, which is not based in science, which is based on a single interpretation of scriptures, should trouble us all, unquote. Now, I would expect to hear that sort of talk coming from a variety of secular sources, but never from within the church family, let alone my own sect. It is both absurd and it's also a bold-faced lie. Not just because science dictates that life starts at conception, but also because the separation of church and state, as like a clause, was originally meant to protect the open practice of Judeo-Christian values in the public sector, not to keep us out of it entirely. Because, newsflash, when only one type of religious practice is shut out of public life, that is the definition of religious discrimination. So this pastor is just all the way wrong. On to the non-denominational front, there was Stephen Butler Murray. He's the senior minister at the First Congregational Church in Nantucket, Massachusetts. And he said, quote, One of the great graces of this particular church is that we all come from different backgrounds and beliefs, and we're all over the map on matters of politics. But let us acknowledge the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade this week is one that is difficult for many to bear. While some here will celebrate this decision, others here will, will mourn this as an utter violation. Both interpretations of this decision are present in our congregation, and the irresponsible response would be not to acknowledge that. But no matter who you are, no matter how you feel, know, know that you are held in the love of God, in the love of this diverse community of believers and seekers, and that I will be your minister and I will keep your confidences through whatever you need to talk about with me in the days and weeks and months ahead. No matter where you stand on this issue, you are not alone, unquote. Now, I will be the first to acknowledge his response seems to come from a place of compassion for hurting people. But it's theologically incorrect to say that there should be any question about whether the church family should, st or I should say about where the church family should stand regarding abortion. I understand that many in the church have had abortions, and I understand that it is hard to discuss that, and it's painful, because abortion is a painful and heartbreaking process. But none of those things makes abortion 
any more acceptable in the eyes of our Savior. The only way to heal from something like that is to bring it into the light and to confess its wrongness and to ask God for forgiveness. And then find people who will embrace you as you're having the strength to do that and who will lift you up so you can choose a better, a better path going forward. I speak those words as someone who actively volunteers at multiple pro-life clinics with women who have abortion in their past and they love God in the present. And that is what every single one of them has universally said on the matter. Additionally, I will also say that this particular pastor's response falls within the realm of enableism. And I will get back to that later on in the episode, so just lock that one away right now. Then we get to the Presbyterian viewpoint. And for this, we have an example from Pastor Keith Curldove of New Creation and Faith Presbyterian Church in Greenboro, North Carolina. And he said, quote, In the gospel story today, James and John want to rain down fire to destroy those who believed differently than they did. They wanted to kill everyone in the village. The Supreme Court's ruling on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization rains fire on women and all people who can be pregnant, unquote. Now, he goes on to say that women and those who can get pregnant are terrified of death because of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and rightly so. Now, his response has the double whammy of mixing bad biblical theology and bad logic regarding who is capable of becoming pregnant. I've said it before, and I will say it again. Only women can become pregnant. Men impregnate women. Women become pregnant by men. There is not a single man alive, nor has there ever been, nor will there ever be, who will go to an abortion mill and have a child suctioned out of his uterus because men do not have uteruses and therefore cannot become pregnant and therefore will never be quote-unquote in need of an abortion. It is insane that we've come to a point in society where this is even up for debate, let alone where, a, where the pastor of a church is saying things like that. And if you don't want to take my word for it, there's a phenomenal documentary on the subject titled What is a Woman? And I highly recommend anyone listening to go watch it. But looping back to the original point, there are churches across all the denominations who are being led wildly astray on this. Now, as a lifelong Christian, that breaks my heart. Again, I have an entire episode where I go in-depth as to why you cannot be a Christian and be pro-choice, even out of compassion for women going through horrible things. The pastors who are agreeing with the secular crowd and preaching that nonsense to their congregations should be ashamed of themselves. Now, coming in hot on the other side of the matter, there are those who firmly believe that any states having the capability to decide which preborn children are worthy of protection and which are not is still wrong. For them, the fact that various trigger laws would keep abortion safe in certain states is still grotesque. Now, I've actually been attacked on social media by other pro-lifers because they see the downfall of, raid, of, of, the downfall of Roe as being morally equivalent to when states could individually decide whether black people were humans. A great reference for this is the Three-Fifths Compromise. It was a fantastic step in the right direction, black, but um, on the other side of that coin, black people were still treated as less than fully human by those who wanted to enslave them. In the same way, certain states' trigger laws allow for pre-born humans to receive less than fully human treatment, which will end in their death. And there are many who have extreme issues with that. Now, honestly, I understand where they're coming from. 
I will not lie. My ultimate goal is to see the complete annihilation of legalized abortion. Now, I want abortion to not just be illegal, but also to be unthinkable to the nation as a whole because we recognize the humanity of the preborn child just like we recognize the humanity of already born humans. But that takes a lot of time and a lot of determination and a whole lot of faith that God is in charge. We were all told that Roe would never be struck down, and yet here we are. So to those who are on the other side of the coin, what I will say to you is we must just keep staying the course and keep standing for what is right and keep believing that God is in control. Now, the moral of the overall story on this part about the Christian response versus the secular one is that there's a lot more intersectionality happening between the various categories of moral outrage than people might realize. Now, as a person whose entire premise is finding the space between the picket lines, allow me to provide some illumination. There is a crossover between Christians and secular humans who don't think that the government ever had any right to tell any woman whether they could or could not murder their children in utero. And they use the separation of church and state as like the holy grail that they're going to rest upon. Then there are those who hate abortions personally, both Christian and secular, but they do not want to get into anyone else's business about the matter. Now that, that's cowardice, but it's mutual cowardice, which is either better or worse depending on your outlook. And finally, there's a crossover between Christians and secular humans who firmly believe that killing a child in utero is never okay. My favorite example here is something that went down at the Capitol, and it was it was a conglomerate of three different groups, right? It was the pro-life San Francisco group, and that's actually a group that's run by atheist-slash-agnostic feminists. And then they were paired up with Live Action, which is a Catholic pro-life organization, and then all of them were together paired up with the Abortion Survivors Network. And by the way, that is a network full of people from every walk of life and every faith denomination. And they were all together in D.C. at the Capitol, standing in solidarity of activism and prayer while awaiting the judge's decision. So all the way around the topic, people who love Christ have shared interests and shared goals with those who do not, regarding the sanctity of preborn life in the womb or their opinion of the lack thereof. Now, I think that that will be vital information to have as each state individually decides how far they will go to either slaughter children or to save them. But make no mistake, regardless of whether you believe in Christ or not, he is watching how you react to this decision, and it will be counted when you get to the end of your time on this earth. And if that scares you or it outrages you or you have a very negative reaction to what I just said, I encourage you to think on why and maybe do some research and reevaluate your stance on things. It is never too late to admit that you are wrong and to stand for life. And now for the final piece to this puzzle, what I'm going to call abortion tourism. It is the concept of companies paying for the expenses of of women who work for them to go to abortion sanctuary states and murder their children. Now, I'm not surprised at how fast this new industry has offered up an alternative to choosing life, but I am disgusted. For those who may not know, there is a whole list of companies which have committed to paying for women to go execute their children. Now, the big list can be found by going to lifenews.com, and you can actually search up the title as follows. New boycott list shows 56 companies paying for killing babies and abortion. 
Now, obviously, I can't go over all 56 of them here, but I'm going to give you the big names that I recognized right off the bat. They're as follows. City, Yelp, Bumble, Levi's, Lyft, Amazon, Zillow, Apple, Starbucks, Airbnb, PayPal, Bank of America, MasterCard, Disney, Meta, Microsoft, Dick's Sporting Goods, Patagonia, JP Morgan, Reddit, Netflix, DoorDash, and Match. That's not the whole list by far, but those are some of the big names. All of those companies have committed to paying some or all travel costs for women who work for them to go get abortions. And we know this because it was bragged about in the New York Times, Bloomberg, and The Hill. And this is just within the seven days immediately following the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Companies participating in abortion tourism are painting themselves as champions of women's rights. But as a woman and someone who is incredibly familiar with how the red tape of all of this stuff works, allow me to call a spade a spade. These companies know that it is vastly cheaper to pay a woman to go murder her child than it would be for them to give her maternity leave and help with daycare costs and all of the other things that a mother will rightfully prioritize to provide for her child after the child is born. This is not about women's rights or companies wanting to stand by women. This is about the dollar value bottom line. It is about the truth that these companies are playing on the fact that multiple generations of working class women have been deluded into believing that climbing the corporate ladder of their chosen profession is a better use of their time and their energy than bearing and rearing and nurturing their children. So if you are a woman listening to this, do not fall for that trap. You are smarter and better and worth so much more than that. And so is your child. Period. End of discussion. If your company offers to pay for you to participate in abortion tourism, understand that that system will play you and suck you dry in a vastly more messed up way than regular tourism ever could. Additionally, Abortion tourism will feed off the lie that women must choose between having a successful career and raising their children. My mom, one of the most incredible women I have ever met, is a living example of what setting an example for your children can drive you to accomplish. She successfully obtained a doctorate in mathematics while being a full-time working mom of six children, and she kept a beautiful home in the process. Was it a lot of work? Of course it was. Were there days when she wanted to throw in the towel? Absolutely. Were there countless times when me and my siblings drove her absolutely bananas along the way? Most definitely. But in her own words, when I asked her why she would do all of that, she said, because parenting y'all is the greatest gift of my life and showing you how to live a life worth living is my job and my honor in my savior. Parenting And being successful in the working world is absolutely difficult. But guess what? So is everything worth having in this life. So to my fellow women who might be tempted by this offer of abortion tourism, I pose the question to you. What are you made of? 
Do you want to be the person who decided that you did not have what it took so you could be bribed to kill your child just so that you wouldn't have to aspire to greater heights and to show your kid that they could reach the stars? Is that the legacy that you want to leave behind? That it was too hard so you threw in the towel before even finishing the first lap? From me to you, I can guarantee that you have so much more strength and grit and determination than you realize. Do not fall for the trap of abortion tourism. Prove it to every doubter that you have, maybe even including yourself, that you are a wonder woman just like my mom and that there is nothing that you cannot do. You can have it all and there is no greater motivation to reach for the stars than having a child looking up to you as an example of what can be done. Talk about the best possible version of breaking through the glass ceiling. Now, two final notes here before this week's book recommendation. First, I'd like to handle the argument, you can choose when when you think life begins, but don't force your beliefs on me. And second, the argument, I would never have an abortion, but I will advocate for other women to do so if it is right for them. I've heard both of these arguments to an exorbitant degree since Roe was overturned, so I'm going to address them. Regarding the first argument, I've heard many, many, many times in the past week some version of the following, quote, You can believe that life starts whenever you choose to, but don't force that belief on me and then force me to carry what you think is a kid, unquote. To which I will say, No one gets to arbitrarily choose when they personally believe that human life begins. It is not a topic which is up for debate. It is a scientifically proven fact that a new, unique human genetic code, which, if left to natural progression, will grow into an infant and then an adult later on down the road. That code is there from the moment of conception. Our scientific word for it is DNA, which stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. And newsflash, your DNA is the same kind of code as that of a preborn child. And that type of code is there from the moment of conception onwards because it is formed by the joint pairing of the mom's DNA and the dad's DNA. And two humans cannot create anything besides another human. So do not call it my personal belief that should be kept to myself so that the mother can kill her child without feeling either remorse or guilt. It is a scientific fact. You can pretend that it is not true and you can be mad at me for saying it, but it cannot be ignored and it cannot be revoked no matter how loud the death cult gets. An alternate way of explaining it is something I actually encountered on pro-choice TikTok of all places. Uh, The woman who said the following phrase, she goes by the handle at that nurse Missy, and she said, quote, there is no room for pious when I'm advocating for another human being, unquote. Now, she was explaining why as a pro-choicer, she hates that Roe versus Wade was overturned. Obviously, I'm at odds with her assessment, but her point stands because truth is truth even when found in dark places. There is no room for your own wants and desires when it comes to what the right and proper course of action is. You can dread something with a passion, and you can be terrified of what it means for your world, and you can still do it because it is the right thing to do. Now, I'm going to be the first to say that very rarely is the right thing to do also the easy thing to do, because life doesn't work that way. 
It's not easy to choose to parent a child who is conceived through non-ideal circumstances, but it is still the right and proper course of action for a woman who has discovered that she is expecting a child, no matter the set of circumstances leading to that child's conception, to say, come what may, I am going to be this child's advocate because this child shares my DNA and currently I am his or her only protection from all those who would seek to harm him or her. We as a society collectively give protective lenience to literally every other mistreated people group within our society. To withhold it from the most helpless among us is callous and wrong. It is easier, but that does not make it right. And it doesn't make me pious to, to point that out. To my second point, I've heard countless times, even from those who call themselves believers, some version of the following. Advocacy for women's rights means that I want to fight for their right to be able to have an abortion, even if I think that it is horrendous and I would never do it myself. Now, my response here is that there is a difference between advocacy and enableism. See, I told you we were going to get back to it. Advocacy is fighting for what is right, no matter the opposition. Advocacy looks like everyone who fought to make the slave trade illegal and everyone who fought to end the persecution of the Jews and everyone who fought for women to have the right to vote, to name just a few. Advocacy is when you see a wrong, which, by the way, requires you to hold a moral standard of what wrong is, which comes directly from Judeo-Christian values. But advocacy means that when you see wrong things happening, you stand up and you say, I will not be quiet until the wrong is made right. That is good and it is proper and it has rid polite society of all manner of evils. On the other side of the coin, enableism. That is where you know that something which someone is doing is bad for them and it's bad for those whom their decision affects, but you say nothing or maybe you do nothing. Now, usually it does come from a place of love for the person making the bad decision. Maybe you don't want to hurt them. Maybe you don't want to lose them. Or maybe you don't even have a clue where to start the conversation. But either way, the end result is the same. Enableism comes in many formats. It could be not reminding promiscuous people that they could face diseases and heartbreak and mental illness due to their promiscuity. A great example is hookup culture, which, as it, oh my gosh, hookup culture has led my generation to so much pain. It also can look like places such as California and New York, where the war on drugs has gone so far south that people are actively shooting up in the streets, and instead of stopping them, the solution has become to allow them a more hygienic space to do so. That has led to record-breaking drug deaths in just the past few years. It also looks like what happens when someone is in a toxic romantic relationship, and you do not even try to reason with them because maybe you don't think they'll listen to you, or maybe they haven't been hurt yet, and you don't want to be the one to break their heart. But that is how things such as domestic violence occur and they get hurt anyways. Now, generally, in the pro-choice world, enableism comes in the format of wanting to show care for a female who has just been through something horrific. Maybe it's rape, maybe it is incest, maybe it's a domestic violence situation. Either way, she's turned up pregnant, and you truly believe that the most loving thing that you can do is to encourage her to be rid of the child, because it seems like that is the shortest solution to help her overcome her pain and move on with her life. 
But speaking from a place of having done my research and volunteering in two separate pregnancy resource centers, I promise you that what she needs is someone to stand by her side and to help her choose life in the face of the horror that she has already lived. To encourage her to be stronger than whatever she has come from. Women in that spot need to know that there is something better coming and that their ticket to that better is not murder. Now, I have an entire episode of Statistics and Stories, which I encourage you to go listen to after this, that deals specifically in people who are encouraging women to go get an abortion after they've been through something horrific. And by way of further explanation, advocacy in the face of that which is wrong takes extraordinary courage, but it is the proper course of action. Enableism in the face of that which is wrong is cowardice, pure and simple. It can absolutely stem from a place of deep care for the person doing the wrong thing. And it can be hard and terrifying to stand up and speak the truth. But doing a wrong thing out of a good heart spot is still doing a wrong thing. When you love someone and you care about their best interests, the best thing that you can possibly do is to be truthful with them rather than lie for the sake of making them happy or making them feel less awful about whatever the thing is that they're struggling with. And the truth when it comes to pregnancy is that you are carrying a human child or maybe multiple human children in your womb and to purposefully exterminate them for any reason is the definition of murder. Therefore, doing everything possible to save those innocent children in the womb from death is the definition of a righteous cause. Ergo, the fall of Roe versus Wade, or the overturning, is a phenomenal form of advocacy for the most helpless among us, aka the pre-born children. Now those notes made, it's time to switch to this week's book recommendation. I've actually recommended this book before, but since I have found that personal testimonies tend to hold extraordinary power to change hearts and minds, I'm going to recommend it again. It's called The Walls Are Talking. It's by Abby Johnson. Now, you may not believe me when I speak to the horrors of abortion and the very real trauma that it contains for everybody who participates, but hopefully you will believe those who lived it and enabled it and saw it for what it was and walked away. I know that for some of you who have listened this far, I'm just that nauseatingly pro-life freak who doesn't understand your mindset. But the women in this book came from the exact same place that you are currently. They wanted to share the things that they saw and the realizations that they made with you. I you. I encourage you to give the book a shot. Again, it is called The Walls Are Talking, and it is by Abby Johnson. Of course, you can find it in all of the usual places. Switching gears once more. If you would like to reach out to me personally for help, or maybe you have questions or comments or concerns, or you just think I'm a terrible person, whatever it may be, I'm on Facebook as Bex David, that's B-E-X, last name David like the biblical king, and I'm on everything else as proudly pro-life Gen Z woman. I am here for you. Additionally, If you like this podcast, don't forget to share it with someone else who you think might benefit from it. And of course, subscribe slash download the episodes. And I'll even encourage you one step further. If you're a person who's listened this far or listened to any of these episodes and you just vehemently disagree with me, please, by all means, share this podcast with others who also vehemently disagree with me. I would love to hear your responses and open a dialogue of communication because I'm all about meeting in the space between the picket lines. Now, next time, we're going to discuss the impact of the Hippocratic Oath to the movement. 
Between now and then, I challenge you to live as though you are loved and cherished and precious simply because you are alive and our Savior did not create you by accident. Live as though your life has meaning and purpose, and I promise you that it will revolutionize your world in the best way possible. Until next time, let's continue to be pioneers in the space between the picket lines together. Thank you for tuning in, and God bless.